Well, we are continuing through our series in the book of Matthew, and we are in chapter 23. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles there now. We're in the midst of Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees in a series of woes. We are on woe number four out of seven. And it's important to note that the Lord Jesus speaks using the term woe. He's using the prophetic form that's commonly used by the Old Testament prophets. And so the woes in this chapter are kind of like a bookend to the blessings or the beatitudes pronounced by Jesus earlier on this sermon on the mount. And so this is the fourth one. And so it can be easy for the seriousness of what's happening here to be lost on us because we're kind of going one by one. But we don't, we don't want to miss the main idea here. Please understand what we're reading when we read these woes. These words of condemnation from the Son of God. I can't think of anything more devastating, any words more devastating to hear coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Late theologian R.C. Spool referred to the sections in Matthew 23 as the oracles of doom. The Old Testament prophets, they spoke for God, so it would have been bad to hear woe from them. But this is the Lord Jesus talking. This is God in the flesh. The last thing that you want to hear is a woe from someone who actually has the ability and the power to condemn you. And so as we listen, there's three things that we should be mindful of. Number one, this should be a warning to the unconverted. This should be a warning to the unconverted, to those who are not in Christ. The Lord Jesus, Matthew 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is a matter of eternal life or death. Number two, this should be a cause for self-reflection for Christians. For the church, the people of God, as we listen to these woes each week, let them cause us to self-reflect. And let them lead us to repentance where repentance is necessary and appropriate. Number three, this should produce gratitude in our hearts. Christians who read this should thank God. Sometimes see ourselves in the things that Jesus here. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus, who bore the wrath of that we deserve for all our pharisaical tendencies. And so by the grace of God and by his spirit, may he produce those things in us today. So let's read the text. Is the mic cut? Okay. So I'm, I'm just going to go old school with it. <laughs> Give me hand signals.
sometimes I wonder if technology, all we go through for technology, if it's even worth it, because it's just like, there's just so much stuff happening right now. Oh, amen. You know, that's right. Check, check, check. One, two, one, two. Okay. All right. Let's read. Let's read the text and then I will pray. Let's let's read. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus and the clarity with which he spoke. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us today, uh, that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that the unconverted would be warned and turned to Christ today. We pray that you would cause us as believers to examine ourselves and we pray that you would produce gratitude in our hearts for the only wise God who is just and merciful and faithful. And so Lord, we pray that you would be with us today and that in our time that this spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So as the Lord Jesus continues his oracles of doom in our passage, the first thing that I want us to notice is that he mentions the Pharisees' meticulous religion. Meticulous religion. That's point number one. Meticulous religion. Look again at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. The tithe, which means tenth, was a requirement under the Old Covenant. Israel was required to offer back a tenth of what they had produced as an offering to the Lord. And so this would have included animals, sheep, cattle, grain, wine, oil, all things that would have indicated value in an agricultural society. These days, our net worth is determined by things like our money, our stocks, our assets, our real estate, our crypto. But back then, their net worth all centered around what the land produced, crops, flocks, commodities. So Deuteronomy 14.22 says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Leviticus 27.30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And so the things that the Lord Jesus mentions here, mint, dill, cumin, those things are not specifically mentioned in the tithing requirements in the Old Testament. 
So these, these are not major crops that we're talking about here. So if you had land back then, you would not have seen a whole field full of dill or mint or cumin. Now, those things would have been planted in a, in a tiny little garden somewhere. The thing that these three things have in common is that they all come from small plants and they were used as spices to flavor the food. And so the Pharisees were basically saying, yeah, y'all tied the meat, y'all tied the bulls and, and the sheep, but we're next level with it. Not only do we tie the meat, but we tied the salt that you put on it, the lemon pepper and the hot sauce. We tied in everything. Meticulous religion, going above and beyond, paying attention to all the fine details. And do you see how this could easily become a way to look down on people and to become proud? Right? That's what legalism does. It takes something that goes beyond God's law and then turns that new thing into a law and then begins to judge others by the new law. So, for example, in God's law, it says you shall not steal. Right? Very clear. Law pro, 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 uh, uh, the, the law of God prohibits stealing. But this is how the legalist would reason from that commandment. They would say, well, in order to steal something like clothes, for instance, well, first you got to try on the clothes first in order to steal them. And most people who steal clothes from department stores, they do it in changing rooms. So therefore, I'm not going to go into a changing room. And I'm not going to try clothes on at all in any store. You, you, you see what they did? They took the law against stealing, and then they took it to the changing room in the department store, right? That's what legalism does. So now, when they walk up into Macy's, they go by the changing room, and they like, Psh, dirty thieves, look at them, trying stuff on. That's how all that stealing happens. I don't even, I don't go nowhere near it. I don't go nowhere near it. And then they post it on their Facebook. Why did why are these why are these so-called Christians going up in changing rooms? Who do they think they are? They're not holy. That's what legalism does. I was just talking to this brother this week who told me that he told me this story about four students a few years back who got expelled from a fundamentalist Christian college because they recorded two of the students doing a silly dance. The school had a rule against dancing, and so they got expelled. They got kicked out. Now, now think about this, cause, cause, because I think you can reason back to perhaps where that rule came from. Maybe the school thought, you know what? We don't want our kids or our students engaging in premarital intimacy or fornication. So we also know that a lot of times you look, you look at you know, these kids out here, they're dancing, they're doing all these sensual kinds of dances. So we're not going to allow that kind of dancing because that might lead to premarital, right? But you know, you know what? Beyond that, we're not going to allow any kind of dancing of any kind whatsoever because in order to get to the sensual kind of dance, you got to start with a you know, more innocent kind of dance. So you know what? All dancing, all of it is prohibited. You, you, you see what they've done? There was a law, a good, a good thing, and then they, they moved a couple steps away from it and then made this, made this rule. 
So now this new rule becomes the standard by which a person judges whether or not they're walking in holiness or not. And so these boys, these students, go on camera doing a silly dance. It's on YouTube, you can see it. It's, it's nothing. But they end up getting expelled. This is adding to the law. The Pharisees were meticulous in their religion. And what we're going to see in a moment is that the Lord Jesus isn't necessarily condemning, condemning them for that. Being meticulous and striving after holiness is not a bad thing in and of itself. The problem is that when we go beyond God's law, meticulousness usually corresponds with self-righteousness, being judgmental, having a critical spirit towards others. Those things usually go together. Why? Because we feel like, well, they're not taking it to the same extremes as we are. What they were doing was not bad in and of itself. The problem is what they were neglecting. And that brings us to our second point. So the first point was meticulous religion. The second point is major responsibilities. Major responsibilities. Look again at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. So what the Pharisees were doing is what today we would call majoring in the minors. They were so concerned about the minor things. Doesn't mean that those things weren't important, although the, the things that they were doing weren't actually even included in the law. But even if they were, Jesus is, is, is showing that there's a prioritization here they were so concerned about the minor things that they were completely disregarding major things. It would be like being in a car, driving on the highway, and then you notice a little uh, speck on your dashboard. And then you get so consumed with the speck, you just, you, you, you're on the road, but you see the speck, and then you just kind of zoom in on the speck, and you're just so focus on getting rid of the, and you're doing everything you can to get the speck off, and then you're crashing in the cars all the, the whole time. S stop the car, and then take, take care of the speck. It's, it's a speck. It's not worth running people over for. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They, they, they neglected three major things that the Lord Jesus names here, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We'll take them one by one. But we're going to we're going to really going to hone in on justice because justice is such a hot button topic in our current context. So justice has almost become a bad word in the church. In fact, our environment is so toxic right now that if a Christian speaks out concerning particular areas of justice, other Christians are quick to throw out the pejorative label social justice warrior. But when I look at my Bible, this verse says that justice is one of the weightier matters of the law. In the mind of God, in God's economy, as he lines things up and prioritizes them, justice is near the top. Micah 6 verse 8, has, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with 
your God. Very few places where, where we see wording like this in the Bible. What does God require of you? It is required of Christians to do justice. That's not optional. We don't, we don't get the, to make the decision to just, just act like, you know, just stick our heads in the sand and act like we don't need to be concerned about justice. He says, do justice. Christians are commanded to be concerned about it. Proverbs 21, verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Did y'all know that was in the Bible? To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Sacrifice was commanded by God to the people of God for the worship of God. And yet, doing justice in God's sight is more acceptable. And so what is justice? Because the word is thrown out a lot of times. We say it with an assumed meaning, don't define it. People saying the same word mean a whole bunch of different things. So what are we talking about when we talk about justice? Well, simply put, we could just simply use the Spike Lee definition and say, do the right thing. Right. And, and, and that that would not be wrong. Like do the right thing. That, that's literally what it means. But in order for something to be right, there has to be an objective standard by which we measure whether or not it's right or wrong. And for Christians who believe the Bible, that objective standard is God himself. And so biblical justice is based on the character of God. God himself is the standard of righteousness. Everything that God does is right because God is righteous. Please understand, righteous, just, those words are used interchangeably throughout the Bible. God does not look outside of himself, see something that is right or just, and then says, hmm, that, that looks, yeah, I, I should do that. No, God himself is the one who determines whether or not something is right or just. And so we look at him to determine whether or not we're on the right path or whether or not we're doing the right thing. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 9-7 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever, and he has established his throne for justice. Psalm 37-28, For the Lord loves justice. God loves justice. Isaiah 61 verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Jeremiah 9, 24, and I love it when we hear God just speaking in the first person about who he is. He says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You hear this, this, this language of love and delight? When's the last time you heard anybody talking like that? I delight in justice and righteousness. This is our God. 
Zephaniah 3.5, the Lord within her, within Israel, the Lord within her, he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So when we talk about biblical justice, where we start is the character of God. This is an attribute of God. It's intrinsic to who he is. He is a just God. So let's begin to flesh it out a little bit. What are some characteristics of biblical justice? I'll name four. There are more, but I'll name four. Number one, biblical justice is impartial. Biblical justice is impartial. So partiality or favoritism is basing the way that we treat people on the wrong things. So people in our sin, we have a sinful tendency to treat people differently based on things like wealth, ethnicity, power, gender, age, political affiliation, position, etc. The Bible comes at that mindset repeatedly. Over and over again, it repeats that God does not show partiality. Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So you, you can't bribe God. You don't, you, you don't have enough. You ain't, you ain't got enough in, in, your, in your crypto account to bribe God. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall, and I love this, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You see what he's saying? You're not to show preferential treatment to anybody, whether it's the poor or the rich. You're to treat everyone Fairly, in righteousness, you are to judge your neighbor. James 2, 1 through 4. My brothers and sisters, do not show partiality or favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's partiality, right? It's partiality that causes some megachurches to have a VIP section for celebrities where they can come in through a, a private entrance, sit in the VIP section, and then leave quietly with a whole bunch of security through the private entrance. That's partiality. The, 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 the culture of celebrityism and celebrity pastors who get, get, get away with all kinds of crazy stuff because of the position of power that they're in. And, 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 and for, for years, get away with abuses 
that are offensive to a holy God. All because of partiality. That's unjust in the mind of our God. So biblical justice is impartial. Number two, biblical justice is punitive. Punitive. And so so we're talking about penalties, or, or another word would be retributive. That is, that means penalties for lawbreakers. Exodus 34, 7, God will by no means clear the guilty. So you, 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 you do the wrong thing in God's sight and you get the appropriate punishment. That is justice. And that is good. That's a good thing. It's a good thing for wrongdoers to be punished. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, God says, vengeance is mine. And recompense. Recompense meaning repay. So God says when it comes to when it comes to every wrong that's done, God adds it up. And one day, the tab gotta be paid. The bill has to be paid. And God says ultimately he's the one that does that. He repays the guilty. So biblical justice is punitive. Number three, biblical justice is proportionate. Biblical justice is proportionate. That is, it gives what is deserved in a manner that is fair and appropriate given the particular circumstances. So when it comes to punishment, it means that the punishment should fit the crime. There should be a proportion between the punishment and the crime. This also could mean things like fair wages, being paid properly and accordingly, depending on the amount of work that is being done. Proverbs 11 verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, and a just weight is his delight. So God hates it when people show preferential treatment to others on the, the wrong kind of basis. That, 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 is, that is an abomination to God to treat people unfairly. Biblical justice is proportionate. And then number four, biblical justice is restorative. Biblical justice is restorative. That is, it is It cares for the marginalized. It cares for the vulnerable, those whose society is prone to overlook. The Bible is very clear that God has a heart for the poor in particular. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors God. It's not that the poor are inherently righteous. That's not what's being said there. The point there is that generally speaking, in this fallen world, it's the poor in any society who are usually on the receiving end of injustice. And God is concerned about that. And he says it over and over again. God recognizes this, and therefore, he makes provision that justice might be done for those who don't often receive it. Jeremiah 22, verse 3, thus says the Lord, 
Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. In the Old Testament, Israel, what, what, what Israel was meant to be was a, was a picture of the coming kingdom of God and what it looked like for a people to be under God's rule. And do you hear what the Lord Jesus is saying, or what God says in, in Jeremiah 22? He says, do justice, do righteousness. What does that look like? It looks like caring for those who have been robbed. It looks like caring for the resident alien or the sojourner, the foreigner, right? The person, the immigrant, the person who comes from another, another land into, into Israel, and is, 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 is prone to receive unfair treatment because they're, they're foreigner, they're, they're, they're from out there somewhere. God says, no, you need to care for them. The fatherless, the orphan, that, 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 that person was very vulnerable in that society, the widow. You hear the people that, he, that, that God is, is targeting and identifying? Because those are the very people who are liable to receive all kinds of injustices against them, and God makes provision for them. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Open your mouth, he says, for those who can't defend themselves. That's the reason why Christians should be concerned about justice for the unborn. Because they, they, they can't defend themselves. They can't speak up and say, I don't want to be killed. So it's up for those who believe in biblical justice to speak up because they can't speak. And we, and we say that's wrong. In the, in the sight of God who, who created people in his image and who crafted each person in the womb, it's wrong to take their lives. And, that, and this is not a political thing. Like we're just talking about the Bible. We're so quick to throw things into our little political categories. We're talking Bible here. Speak up for the mute. Speak up for the destitute. Speak up for the poor. For those that can't do it for themselves. Who else is going to? It's the, we're the people of God. It's restorative. Listen to how God speaks to his people in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. He says this. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Understand, in this context, he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to Israel. But he's referring to them as Sodom and Gomorrah, as a picture, like, like this is how far gone y'all are, Israel. I'm calling y'all Sodom and Gomorrah, the, like the epitome of, of, of wickedness, Old Testament wickedness. That's how I'm referring to Israel. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Again, so interesting because God prescribed it. This is what God has commanded. But yet he says, I don't delight in that. What did he say? Verse 12. 
when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Strong, weighty condemnation. Very reminiscent of Matthew 23 when you hear how God is talking to Israel. But when we continue in verse 17, what do you mean, learn to do good? He says it. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see? You see what God is saying to his people? Y'all are so caught up. In your religion, God says, I know that I commanded it, but I hate it. I hate it because it doesn't, along with that, you shouldn't neglect that, but along with that, you're neglecting the fatherless. Who, who cares if you had the perfect bull to offer up when you're trampling down on those who are the most vulnerable in, in your midst? What difference does it make? Yes, your incense is an abomination because of how you treat the poor. Justice. Justice on an individual level. Oppression, injustice on a communal level. God cares for the marginalized and the vulnerable, those whom society is prone to overlook. I like this quote from Karen Ellis from RTS. She says this, about biblical justice. She says, when we pursue justice for righteousness sake, we proclaim the kingdom of God on earth, his intentions for the world as he created it to be, making wrongs right, holding the unjust accountable, seeing to it that the wronged are made whole, whether it's through state courts or church courts, or even in our personal relationships. We have many avenues to proclaim Proclaim God's kingdom as he wants it to be, end quote. We have many avenues. So, 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 so I'm not here to, to get into the fine details of what it looks like to prescribe each and every situation in each and every case. That's where it takes wisdom. That's where it takes counsel and community. But the point here is that th th this is a principle. And the principle is that the God of Scripture loves justice. And he has commanded us to do justice, and we as his people need to have the same heart that God has. And the Pharisees did not have that heart. And so Jesus comes after them for it. And then he mentions two other things. He mentions mercy, and he mentions faithfulness. Mercy. So, and, and what, Justice and mercy, oftentimes in the scripture, they, they, they go together. And, and it's beautiful because they, they balance each other out wonderfully. Because if we just come in 
with justice minus mercy, we're going to tend to be hard. We're going to tend to be harsh. We're going to tend to be inflexible, stubborn. But then mercy comes along and says, along with doing what's right, not showing partiality, right? It's restored. We're doing the right thing. But along with that, there needs to be compassion. There needs to be a heart of empathy, right? We, we, don't, we don't choose one and then throw the other one away. And that's what the Lord Jesus says. You're neglecting it. You're neglecting justice and you're neglecting mercy. And he says faithfulness, that, that willingness to endure, that willingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. And so when you put all these things together, it boils down to love, Right? That, that's what Jesus is ultimately saying. He's saying, you got a magnifying glass on this fine point in the law that's not even there, but you're adding to it. But you're not loving your neighbor. And, and love is, is the fulfillment of the law. In Luke's account of this, of this text, he adds the love of God in there. Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so, it's not one or the other. It's not, I'm going to choose doctrinal fidelity and, 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 and just meticulousness in my religious rigor in the scriptures. Or over here, I'm going to have a kind heart and compassion that loves people, that treats people justly and with faithfulness and with mercy. The, the Bible, we, we don't get to choose between the two. Notice what he says. These you ought to have done. And, and this is what I appreciate. He's not condemning them for, for the, the, the deal in the mint and the cumin. He's saying, that's what's up. That's good. You should have done that without neglecting the others. So it's doctrine and ethics. It's, it's, it's law. God's law is good. So we, don't, so we don't trample down on the law, right? So we don't become antinomian, right, and, and, just, and just say, nah, like, like, like forget about the law. Like, well, nah, no, no, that's not what we do. We say God's law is good. It's a reflection of his character. It teaches us how to live for God's glory. We can't be saved by it, but... God's law is very important. So we'll trample on the law, but at the same time, we say, yo, we got to love people. We got to show compassion. got to show mercy. And, 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 and many stumbles in the church is, 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 is falling off the horse on one side or the other. Right? You got the people who say, oh, just, just, just love people. Doctrine divides. You know? Well, well yeah, well, truth divides. From falsehood, so and and doctrine is important. Or, or just give me Jesus, no doctrine. Wait, what are you talking about? Tell me who Jesus is, and as soon as you start talking, you're gonna start saying some doctrine, and I'm be able to look at the word and tell whether or not your doctrine is on point, in line with the word or not. So it's not just love love people, forget about doctrine. No, it's 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 love people because of the doctrine, in light of the doctrine we love. Doctrine and ethics. First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I mean, come on. How, how plain can it get? It doesn't matter how much we say we love God. If we're not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, first and foremost, right, it starts with the household of faith, and then that extends out to, to loving neighbor. We can't say it. Love for people is the evidence that love for God is actually there. The Lord Jesus goes on. He says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, this might have been a play on words because the words for gnat and camel actually sound alike in Aramaic, the language that the Lord Jesus was speaking. But in Leviticus 11.34, we see a command that says, any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. So that's if an, if an insect falls into some food or some water, then uh, that, that drink is going to be unclean. And so what he's saying is that the, the Pharisees are making sure they get the smallest insect possible out. So they got the strainer, they got their wine, a little gnat has fallen into their wine. And so they, so they take it and they pour it through and they strain it over and over and over again in order to get one little gnat out of it. And then in the next breath, they go over and they swallow a whole camel. Interesting, in that same passage in Leviticus, Leviticus 11, camels are mentioned earlier as animals that are unclean. So you're straining out this tiny little unclean thing, and then you're going to swallow the biggest unclean animal in all of Palestine. What are we talking about? The Lord Jesus using hyperbole to make his point, and I think we get the point. The point is their priorities were off. They had the wrong priorities. So my last point as we bring this to a close is simply Messiah's resume. So we've considered meticulous religion. We've considered major responsibilities. In our last few moments, let's consider Messiah's resume. Praise God for the Lord Jesus. Because <laughs> the Lord Jesus, he walked it like he talked it. He practiced what he preached. The Lord Jesus himself is the embodiment of all the virtues that he's mentioning that the Pharisees are neglecting. Remember I mentioned Isaiah chapter 1, where God condemns Israel and then tells them to do justice and to care for the poor and the oppressed? At the end of that passage in verse 7 and earlier, he tells them to make themselves clean. A verse later in verse 18, he says how this is going to happen. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. After all that condemnation, after all that right justice from the Lord towards his, his fallen, wayward people. In the next verse, he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, 
They shall become like wool. God made a promise that he would cleanse them from all of their injustice, from all of their iniquity. And the way that he would do it hundreds of years later was through the coming, the life, and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not add to the law like the Pharisees did. He he didn't add stuff that wasn't there. He did the harder thing. He fulfilled the law that was there. Every point of the law, in thought, in word, in deed, Jesus fulfilled it all. But not only that, not only did he in his righteous, perfect life completely fulfill the law at every point, at the cross, he suffered the penalty for all of our law breaking. So, so, so Jesus, he fulfills the law, and then he takes the curse of the law on himself at Calvary, brothers and sisters. He bore the curse of the law for all of our law breaking. Jesus is the epitome of justice. Everything that applies to God the Father applies to God the Son. If it's true that righteousness and justice are the foundation of the Father's throne, it's true that righteousness and justice are the foundation of Jesus' throne. He's just. He's perfectly just. Jesus is the epitome of mercy. The same Son of God who is perfectly just is the same one who looked out on the crowds and had compassion on them and pity on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's the same one who entered. He he didn't just condemn people from a distance, but he came into our midst and walked amongst us. He entered into our pain. He took up our infirmities. He took up all of our grief. He took up all of our sorrows. He wasn't distant. He empathized. He came. He he showed perfect affection and empathy towards his people for the glory of God because he's a merciful and compassionate Savior. Jesus is the epitome of faithfulness. Faithfulness, doing what you have promised. Jesus In Christ, everything that God has promised is yes and amen. The Lord Jesus is the one in Revelation 19 coming on that white horse with eyes, flames of fire, whose name is faithful and true. He's the epitome of faithfulness. And do we not see all of these things meeting perfectly at the cross where we see the justice of God on full display? Where he, where he shows himself to be, to be uh, just and the justifier of those who place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, do we not see the mercy and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hangs on the cross saying, Father, please forgive them. They know not what they do. Do we not see the epitome of faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary, where he brings to culmination everything that was promised since all the way back in Genesis 3, when God promised the serpent that he was going to crush his head. He's perfectly faithful. There's no one like our Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, we have our marching orders. Let us, by the grace of God, Do justice. 
let us walk mercifully and compassionately. Let us, by the grace of God, pursue faithfulness, knowing that all of these things are impossible in our own strength. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. But these things have been fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ, and now that gives us the power to do it by the grace of God. Kids, I'll give you the last words. Kids. Kids, God is not only concerned with you reading your Bibles and you praying and, you know, singing songs to God. Those things are all good, and we want to encourage those things, right? But God is very concerned with how you treat your brother and your sister. He's very concerned with how you treat your parents in obeying them. He's very concerned even with how you treat the kids that don't treat you well. So if you say you love God, which is good, we want to encourage that. We also want to encourage, show that you love God by loving other people for God's glory. And kids, please understand that even when you fail to love your brother or your sister or your mommy or your friends the way you should, that's why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross to pay for all the times that big people and smaller people fail to do what we should do. And that's why we give God all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we will be stuck in hypocrisy and religion as a show and being caught up in minute details and neglecting the way to your matters. Lord, may that not be so amongst the people of God here at RCF. Would you help us, Father? to be a people who pursue holiness in the way that we walk humbly with our God and love others. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who fulfilled the law on our behalf. So would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and the finisher of our faith. For the glory of your name we ask in Jesus' name, amen.